Welcome to Spaced Out with Sez Canada. My name is Shemika Gunawardena, and welcome to our very first episode. With this being a new project, we think that you, the listener, deserve a bit of context about what exactly Spaced Out is about. Well, think of us like a restaurant, maybe one that's on the moon, and think of yourself as a diner. Now in this place, I will be your server, allowing you to sample stories and conversations of different flavors that take place in the world of space and space exploration. Some of these flavors will be bold, some subtle. All that we ask from you is that you have even the tiniest bit of interest in space. And if you don't, well that's fine too, because we'll be doing our best to spark some interest in you. Now, on the topic of sparking interest, today's episode will be about education and outreach in the field of space exploration. To me, it feels like growing up, almost every kid that knew about space at some point in time wanted to either be an astronaut or just have a chance to go to space. And going through school, information and opportunities about pursuing a career related to space was not very easy to come by. In recent years, I would say that the excitement about space exploration has definitely been increasing, and it's pretty clear that people are still pretty interested in space, especially if you consider media coverage on the James Webb Telescope and the upcoming Artemis missions. And while landmark events like this can inspire generations of future space explorers, it's just as important that both the resources and people to make learning about space more fun and accessible exist on a more consistent basis. But outreach and getting more of the public actively engaged in learning about space is not easy. Anybody who tries to do so faces questions such as, how do you go about inspiring youth to learn more about space? And how exactly can you bring the experience of space here, down to earth? To go about answering these questions and gain some insight into the initiatives already out there, we went out into the world of space outreach and asked a few professionals some of these questions. And by we, I mean, Sophia Trozo, I am the current VP internal with SETS Canada. And Sylvia Nadim, the Director at Large of Outreach with SETS Canada. Whose voices you'll be hearing as they guide us through the following interviews. So first up, we have Kate Howells. I work for a nonprofit that does public education on space topics. This is Kate. So we create educational resources for general public consumption that we disseminate through online platforms. So social media, um, articles, videos, live like uh, webinar events, a radio show as well. So we're on the air as well as in like podcast form. And everything that we put together is aimed towards a general audience rather than like a scientific audience. Um, and it's all about space science and exploration topics, mostly focusing on planetary science, search for uh, life beyond Earth, planetary defense, so defending Earth from asteroid impacts, and sort of some general space topics, but we don't get too much into like cosmology and that kind of thing. She served as a member of the Government of Canada's Space Advisory Board and is currently a global community outreach manager at the Planetary Society. My role specifically is that I do a lot of writing and editing of articles. I oversee social media strategy, I do some advocacy work with the Canadian government that's like becoming a smaller and smaller part of my job over the years. But that mostly involves trying to get a sense from the Canadian space community, the science community of like what are the pressing advocacy needs, and then using the Planetary Society's sort of clout and Canadian membership to uh, put some weight behind a advocacy appeal to the government um, to, in support of whatever those um, space community needs are. And let's I do, I, sometimes I appear on the news in Canada when there's some big space event, sometimes I'm called on to comment on it. And so that's on like TV news, sometimes radio, sometimes podcasts, sometimes talking to reporters who are writing written pieces. I speak at public events sometimes. Um, conferences in the space community, but also uh, things that are oriented towards public audiences. Yeah, I feel like people think you can only work in space if you're from engineering or like an astrophysics background, but even yourself, you don't have like a purely mm -hmm. science background. So no. yeah, that, I'm, that's probably the thing I'm most passionate about and that I try to direct most of my efforts towards um, is, is, you know, trying to f find people who aren't already super tapped into space. Because, you know, there's a million space nerds out there. And I love talking to them because they really get it. And it's really, you know, everybody's enthusiastic and that's really fun. But I'm super passionate about finding those people who say, like, 
yeah, you know, I saw those JWST images and it's so beautiful, but like, I don't understand what I'm supposed to feel about this. I don't know what this means. And it's kind of intimidating and like, oh, the hugeness of the cosmos is scary. And I can't like, you know, I can't really try to learn more about it because I didn't do well in school and math and science and stuff. So, you know, it's just not for me. I like finding those people and showing them that you don't need to have a particular science background. You don't need to identify as like a nerdy type. Like a lot of people find that there's even just a cultural difference between who they are and what their sort of stereotype of the science person is. And that plays into all kinds of stereotypes and and boundaries that have been sort of established over the years. And it, you know, it plays into like gender and race, ethnicity, um, like class, like there's all, you know, everything that's wrong with society, it all filters down and affects how people engage with science as well. And I just am super passionate about trying to meet people where they are and speak to people in, in language that's not dumbed down, but that is relatable and, you know, identify what parts of space education in particular are most accessible to people, like images of space, super accessible. It doesn't matter if like, I don't understand what's going on inside a nebula, but you don't need to, et cetera. Absolutely. So our next question is based on your experience in the industry, what is the current accessibility of space outreach and education in Canada? I think if you have access to the internet, you have access to space outreach. Now, I would say that that it's not necessarily coming from Canadian sources and it's not necessarily specifically about Canada's activities in space. Um, Because I know there are a lot of groups doing that, but I think the most accessible information that you're going to get about space is going to come from sources like NASA, maybe the Planetary Society, other groups that are international or US based, just because there's a lot more resources being put into space outreach from these places. You know, it, it used to be in the case, you know, in like the 70s that you wanted to see images from, you know, Voyager or whatever, you'd have to tune into the TV broadcast of the news where they had like photos that NASA had sent them physically and they'd be showing them. Whereas now it's all disseminated through the internet. I think that, you know, the, the other side of this is, is in-person immersive experiences, like getting to go to a planetarium or getting to look through a telescope or going to a, like a talk or something like that. I think those opportunities are probably less available across the country. You're mostly going to find them in cities for the planetarium and talks and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I definitely think that internet is one of the biggest like players because everybody uses social media mm-hmm. and especially like JWST photos, like that was all over the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so definitely a need to increase some in-person organization stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so based on your experience, what do you believe are current barriers to participation in space education or outreach or events even in Canada for young people and the general public? Barriers would definitely be socioeconomic, like, you know, access to the internet, access to TV, um, that kind of thing. I mean, those are the sort of baselines. And then I would guess also that, yeah, depending on where you live, you might have less access to in-person events. Like I said before, um, that's probably a big one. And then I would guess too, that like just having, like having people in your life that introduce you to space a lot of people just don't really know what's out there they don't know what you know they've never seen a picture close-up of jupiter or whatever because nobody's really introduced them to that like kids in school all learn about space at a certain point but it's not really a big part of it and you know your your teachers may or may not have like lots of resources to sort of enrich the curriculum so i think i don't know what exactly the barrier there is but i would guess it also kind of falls along like socioeconomic lines And then I think a big barrier is, yeah, this sort of identification with science. I think some people are told you can do science, like you're the type of person who can, who can get this kind of stuff or who should be, you know, engaging in these kinds of topics. And some people are very clearly told, no, science is not for you. And so I think that sort of reinforces itself where you are, yeah, like, you know, a middle-class white boy, you're probably getting Christmas presents of like, you know, chemistry kits and, you know, space toys and whatever. Whereas, you know, if you're like a young black girl, you might be less likely to be 
encouraged by society to see yourself as a person who is the kind of person who does science. And so I think, I do think that I don't have like the data to back this up, but I'm quite sure that those sort of societal stereotypes reinforce themselves and it affects how people feel about science and how they feel they can engage with it. And those kind of attitudes can be so impactful. Absolutely. That's a really great point. Yeah. I need, I mean, I need data to back it up, but this is my conviction and I, and I know I've read about it, but yeah, but I mean, I mean, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure that that, that's the case. Those stereotypes reinforce themselves. And you can even see that within like engineering classes or like science classes in my year for first year engineers, engineering students, it was like 30% of women made up like all of the engineering students. And it's, like that just shows that like maybe in high school they weren't encouraged or in middle school even and yeah like and like this whole point of also like who introduces you to space is like really important because like for me my sister is the one that introduced me and like had I not had that influence I I don't think I would have thought that I would have maybe the ability to work in this type of field so Yeah, yeah definitely having like personal like connections who are interested in that kind of thing like I like I have a friend who's a she's now she's a professor of engineering at U of T but she she told me that her dad her dad is an engineer and she would never have thought of going into engineering if it weren't for her dad being an engineer because it just wasn't really presented to us girls like back when I was in high school you know I didn't know I didn't even know what engineering was nobody had really ever told me that this was a thing I could do so I went into an arts program and I yeah I think having those having somebody in your life show you that you can do this and then also having role models. That's another thing where these sort of stereotypes of who does science reinforces itself is that you have a million, you know, astronauts and famous scientists and famous engineers who are men. It's harder to find role models for women. And then especially if you add like, like race or ethnicity or like, like um, socioeconomic, like upbringing, like all these different factors, or even just like personality type. I remember when the Curiosity rover landed on Mars and there was, do you remember the NASA Mohawk guy? He was like one of the engineers working on like the mission team. And so when they were showing the landing, they kept on cutting to the room where the mission team was working. And this one guy has a mohawk and like stars died into the side of his head and stuff. And everybody went nuts on the internet because they were like, who is this guys who look like this don't do science? Like people who are kind of cool and different and alternative don't do science and engineering. Like what is going on? It blew everybody's minds. And I think that's such a good example of the sort of um, social and cultural stereotypes where if you're if you're the type of person who wants to get a mohawk, you might think, well, I can't also be an, a science nerd. And I think a lot of people kind of choose one path or another in their lives. And so I'm really interested in trying to show people like you can be all different kinds of person and be interested in science. For anybody unfamiliar with the NASA Mohawk guy, his name is Bobak Ferdowsi, and he currently works at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. I'm, I think I'm getting off track. No, no that's really so, good. <laughs> yeah, like, and there's so much science, even just in art. Like, if you just look yeah. at art, there's so much you can explain just through art. And yeah, I think just people separate that, but it's it's all interconnected. Yeah. And you can use art to explain math, science space yeah yeah we need to be more collaborative and work together in different fields uh, absolutely absolutely I mean and one of the things that people say when they're when talking about the importance of like having diversity in a workplace which often refers to like gender racial ethnic diversity is that having more different perspectives from different kinds of life experiences um and just different ways of thinking like bringing all of that to the table it makes for a stronger team and I think the the same applies to different sort of um, interests, different social and cultural backgrounds. So yeah, having someone with a real artistic perspective and artistic interest and seeing things through that lens, bringing them to the table in like, you know, a conversation or a project about something scientific, I think that's really valuable. And like, I mean, likewise, just having any any different types of personality and different types of sort of culture or interests or whatever your identity is, different kinds of identity, I think that really does strengthen the whole endeavor and I think the more people who get interested in this kind of thing the, the, you know the better it'll do 
That's awesome. So our next question is, from your experience and your perspective, what are the best ways to engage the public with space education and outreach? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think it, de it depends what your goal is ultimately. Like different, different people, different groups have different outreach goals. So some people, their focus is on getting more people into the STEM workforce. So then their best approach is gonna be, you know, target students, target kids, get them feeling empowered and confident and interested. So that involves, I think, a lot of giving kids like hands-on experiences, opportunities to like try things out and see for themselves that they can do it, building that confidence through that sort of experience. If your goal is, so for an organization like the Planetary Society, our goal is to get more people to be like vocal supporters of public investments in space exploration. So we want to engage people and make them feel that they have a personal investment in space science and exploration, that they get something out of it. They can appreciate the benefits that come from all this discovery and that they have that they feel empowered to speak up as citizens and, you know, take, take that role of, you know, voter and constituent and activate it to like, let your representatives in government know that you believe in something. So a lot of our outreach messaging focuses on identifying sort of what, why you should care about X or Y mission and that you have a, a the power to make more of this kind of thing happen. So we're really trying to focus on empowering people, making them feel invested in it personally. But that's, yeah, with specifically with the goal in mind of getting people to, you know, reach out to their representatives in government, that kind of thing. For, for me, with my like personal interest in reaching people who aren't typically engaged in science learning, my strategy is to connect space stuff to people's like lived experiences. So something that is familiar to you. So trying to, trying to take like a piece of, you know, space news or whatever and, and figure out how to translate it into terms that will resonate with someone's lived experience. And I focus in that kind of outreach, I focus on big picture, broad strokes, shallow end of the pool. You know, we're not diving deeply into the science of stuff. We're not going, I'm not going to use big numbers or figures. I'm not going to drop jargon. It doesn't matter to me if I skim over a bunch of the details. I want to focus on sort of big picture, digestible things. So yeah, so that's, and I would, I mean, one other thing too, is I know that a lot of Canadian outreach is really focused on reminding the Canadian public that we have a space program and getting the public to be supportive of that space program and excited about it, which I think is kind of ultimately tied to the goal of ensuring like continued funding from the federal government for the space program that if, you know, Canadian people are uninterested and disengaged and don't know and don't care that we have a space program, then cutting funding to the space program is a lot more politically viable. So having an engaged population is of strategic interest to the space program. So they do a lot of outreach that's focused on Canada's role, Canada's contributions, Canadian scientists and engineers, you know, the Canadian instrument on this spacecraft, um, you know, how this benefits average Canadians, etc. I would say that they overemphasize that stuff and kind of forget about the big picture. Like Canadians still just want to see photos of Jupiter, you know, <laughs> like there's some big stuff that we could be capitalizing on to like build public interest in space in general and then add on the Canadian component. Well, and there's, in my opinion, like there's such a value in having space as a hobby, like just yeah. thinking about it as a hobby, you know, not it doesn't have to be your job, but just being able yeah. to think that way and have that as your hobby and and uh, spend your free time thinking like yeah. that. I think that's so cool. And that's very yeah. And there's so many ways that people can engage with space as a hobby, whether it's like, you know, you get your little backyard telescope. A lot of people do astrophotography, which is so cool. It's such a cool way to appreciate space. Um, and then, you, can, you know, you can build model rockets. You can like make Lego versions of the space station. Like there's a million different things you can do. A lot of people do space art, which is also just so cool. I love that so much. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, cause sometimes I get asked questions by people who are like, oh, I'm really passionate about space, but like, how do I get, make it my career? 
And the truth is that it's, it's hard to make a space career. Like I'm lucky in that I didn't have to slog through like an engineering degree or a science degree to like get into the industry. I mean, that's, that's hard, hard, hard work and it's not for everybody. But a lot of, a lot of the advice I give to those people is like, don't worry about making it your career. Cause ultimately your career kinds of kind of winds up being, you know, a slog anyways, you know, you always wind up, you know, you get paid for a reason, even if you love the, the topic, like sometimes at my job, I'm like so frustrated with it and I don't want to do it anymore. And like, you know, you get bogged down in the politics of the office, et cetera. So sometimes it's nice to just keep your passion as your side passion and engage in it on your own time and in ways that bring you pleasure rather than turning it into something that like has all of the baggage of a job attached to it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's like this is maybe a little political, but it's like we kind of are in like this capitalistic society where we think like we can't just enjoy things to enjoy things. Like we yeah. have to make money off of it. Yeah, totally. And it, yeah, a lot of people think like that their job has to be the most important thing in their lives, and that's why they want their job to be something that they're passionate about. But I think that that's also yeah, that's the capitalist lie, man. I feel you on that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's like, there's, yeah, there's so many things you can do and you don't have to make money off of it. It's just can be yeah. for your interest. Yeah. So our next question is when, when you try to reach the public with space education and outreach, what barriers do you face? I mean, I think a big one is just that it, the, you wind up preaching to the choir a lot more than you'd like. Like I'm really interested in reaching out people who don't always engage with space topics, but it's hard. It's hard to get to them, especially if you're doing stuff online. So like I write these articles, who's gonna read them? It's gonna be people who are already interested in space. The opportunities that I get that are are the best for reaching non-space people is something like, yeah, getting to go on the news for five minutes when talk about a space mission. But you know, those opportunities don't come up that often. Likewise, I'm working um, locally here in Guelph with a group that's, that's doing like science outreach stuff. We're working towards building a science center, but in the meantime, we, you know, we got millions of dollars to raise before that can happen. So in the meantime, we're doing um, outreach in the community. And one of our strategies is to like go to where people already are, like local, you know, multicultural festival or music festival, or like there's this brewery that has like a big brewery event once a year. So we're, we're bringing science um, exhibits and like interactive things to these kinds of events because people who wouldn't normally engage with science will be there. But again, that's like, doing these in-person things, you only really get a handful of opportunities per year. So for me and like my specific outreach goals, that is one of the biggest barriers is actually getting your message in front of the people that you want to hear it when those people aren't seeking it out. That's really challenging. Yeah, exactly. I think like we sort of feel that a little bit because like we're trying to start this chapters program and like we're 100% going to get students at schools who already have space like teams and stuff. Yeah. And we, it's kind of like, yeah, that's awesome. But we kind of want to get those schools where there's no space. And then we want to build it from there. Yeah. So. And if you had, if you had like a person at one of those schools who could then go to, you know, like talk to people, get people involved. But if you're just starting from scratch, it is, yeah, it's hard to break into a new group. Well, if your mess, if the only way to reach them is like sort of one way messaging, like you're sending, you know, announcements or you're tweeting or whatever, but like who's actually going to hear that or read it. So yeah, that's, that's definitely very challenging. Yeah, for sure. And so what do you think needs to be done to make your work with space education and outreach more accessible to the general public? Well, they could have me on the news more often. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, what could be done? Um, if publications or like programs that are already reaching wide audiences starting started introducing more science segments, I think that would be that would be good. If there were more like science institutions, places like more science centers, more planetariums, like that kind of thing. I think if there were if there were was more government funding for science outreach in communities, I think that would go a long way. Because, yeah, like if there was like a science center in every city in Canada, then, you know, just hop around, do events at different ones. And, you know, they understand their communities. And so they, you know, you can like tap into that knowledge and to that audience. No, that's, yeah, I mean, that's really good insight. And it's, it's hard, right? When you're like, it's, it's hard to think of 
what you can what you can do more of if you're already doing so much and you're going out and um, finding all these opportunities so yeah so. yeah yeah I mean a lot of the feedback that I personally get is like wow you're so enthusiastic like that makes me you know it makes me feel excited too and which I really love because I genuinely am like so jazzed about space stuff um and that I mean and that does reinforce for me that there's there's value to being personable and emotional like I speak in a very casual way most of the time and I um I don't use a lot of lingo I, I don't have a brain that can remember numbers very well so like I don't draw on like facts and figures and dates and distances and that kind of stuff when I'm talking about space and and I when I first started out doing this kind of work I was very nervous that I wouldn't be taken seriously because I couldn't remember you know how far the earth is from the moon or whatever um but I the feedback I've gotten is that like that stuff doesn't really matter and that just being a human being and speaking to people like you know you're just having a conversation rather than you know giving a scientific lecture or something i think that that um goes a long way with people to make them feel engaged and so yeah i've gotten a lot of feedback kind of confirming that and that has helped kind of shape sort of my approach to outreach and i still do get a lot of feedback from people that say like I don't know. I'm still just, I'm still scared. I'm still, I'm still freaked out. I still don't know. Um, and that, that motivates me to keep working harder, um, to, to try to, you know, get through to people and change, change their minds about their ability to engage with this kind of stuff. If somebody, if I like I'm talking with somebody in person and they tell me that they think that they're too stupid to understand space, that I'm not going to leave them alone until I've tr tried my best to change their mind. I think that outreach is tough because you end up reaching the same audience over and over again. And as Kate just put it, end up preaching to the choir. And with something online, especially reaching out to people and getting their attention is tough because there's so many different things that are online that are competing and trying to capture your attention at the same time. And um, there's definitely a value to having physical experiences, lived experiences would be a better term. And so to sort of shift away from this idea of online outreach, the next person that we interviewed, this project is a bit more, definitely a bit more hands-on. It, well, I'll just let him say what his own work is. For the past 12 years, I've run a company called Astronomy in Action that I founded using portable inflatable planetariums to travel across, uh, as well, pretty far across Ontario to uh, bring programs to kids, adults, families, whoever will listen to me, scouts and guides, that kind of thing. This is Ryan Marciniak. Apart from being a director of Astronomy in Action, he's also an astronomer, educator, and science communicator. I was doing it part-time for a long time. I was also working at the Ontario Science Centre, so I've had a good uh, a good mix of science outreach and space outreach specifically um, with them. But traveling, I've gotten to see a lot of communities, small towns, big cities, all across Ontario. Um, I took the business full time in 2019, purchasing a larger inflatable dome that is fully accessible. And so one of the nice things is to be able to do uh, projects, programs, festivals with accessibility in mind, instead of, you know, a typical planetarium where you, you crawl in and isn't necessarily wheelchair friendly. Uh, I'm sure Sophia has told you a lot about the PHSS program in London that we put together for uh, adults with disabilities. Just a quick interjection here. The PHSS is a nonprofit organization which provides support and services for people who have complex medical, physical, and or developmental needs. And, you know, we did an event uh, about, I guess that was almost a month ago now, more than a month ago, where uh, a lot of adults with disabilities were able to come into the dome and have a nice experience that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to have. So that's one of the things that's really, really joyful about bringing accessibility in. But uh, in, in general, um, we also do virtual programs. We're running camps for the first time in person this summer. Uh, and then we're going to be kind of growing our public programs this fall and seeing more communities that we go and visit instead of clients booking us in. So looking forward to, to those initiatives as well. That sounds so great. <laughs> 
Yeah, the PHSS program was really, really cool. We saw a lot of people and it was really nice to bring that community together in London. So yeah, it was, it was amazing. All right, second- funny, I, just, I just wanted to add in before you um, ask the next question, Sophia, sorry to interrupt. Uh, the one thing I don't often talk about is content, but it is, I think, important to, to address because, uh, you know, I talk about the clients that we see and the people that we bring space and, and education to. But one of the things that um, the company we strive to do is to keep the modern understanding of science and the modern knowledge of astronomy in mind. So we're always looking to add new content that matches recent discoveries, that's da- uh, data driven, uh, and that follows the uh, the correct and current scientific understanding, which is important when you come from an education perspective. Yeah. I think it's really hard to do outreach in science in general. Um, I've been a science communicator for 13, 14 years at this point. And I know a lot of people who got into science community, and I'm talking broadly about science communication. I'll focus in on space in a little bit, but um, science communication is a tough field to get into unless you're in communications. Right. A lot, we have a lot of people with science backgrounds that end up going into communications and they don't they don't get to do the things that they like about SciComm, which are interacting with the public, running events and participating in events. Most SciComm professional jobs are writing um, uh, commu- like social media communications for larger organizations, you know, and even within the space industry, too. So, you know, I think what often happens is a lot of people get into SciComm and they start at a place like the Science Center or uh, work with their university for something like Science Rendezvous, a huge event across Canada, and get this great idea of like, wow, this is really fun. Like, I would want to do this and then find out that there are no jobs in that uh, that are basically that. So I suppose that's what I'm trying to do is carve that out a little bit. Uh, currently, you know, currently I've carved that out for myself more or less, but I want to carve that out for others as well. Um, so I would say the current state of the accessibility of space outreach is pretty low. You've got the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, who is limited by funding and mission um, with what they can do. You have other medium-sized organizations who are, again, underfunded or limited by the funding that they do have that probably could do a lot more. The Canadian Space Agency doesn't do as much outreach as they should be doing, in my opinion, or as they could be doing. But again, budgets and funding are a big thing. And there's just not a lot of private companies doing space outreach specifically. Um, there's me. There's the ROM, sort of. There's the Science Center, sort of. But, you know, they, those organizations have different missions, right? The ROM is focused on history and education and, and culture. This, the Ontario Science Centre is, is a cultural institution who is focused on general science and outreach in that, in that front. So space specifically, there's not very much. And I think that there's not a lot of, that students, young people who are coming into the space industry don't find a lot of, they don't have a lot of opportunities to connect with outreach organizations, if at all. As more private organizations become profitable, whether it's companies producing rockets or, I mean, other outreach organizations, I think that the funds will go, will come a little bit more. The problem is right now is it's hard to fund an outreach organization when there's no return, immediate return on investment. You and I know that if you fund science outreach, you're going to produce more scientists that will create an economic value down the road. But that's not hard numbers for a person who's handing out funding, right? So I think that as more organizations uh, come around that, that do space in a profitable way, they will have more incentive to create more opportunity for outreach to eventually home grow their own staff and, and staff in the industry, you know? Yeah, that's very true. I think like one thing that we noticed, because uh, when I started with SEDS, it was around like three years ago. And even then, like when we were trying to get sponsors for our national um, like space conference, we had a very small pool of companies that we could reach out to for funding. Um, but then even within the past year, when we were looking at sponsors, it was like that almost doubled. Like they're, like yeah. the companies that we were looking at three years ago, 
weren't making the profits that they're making now. So they're able to fund a lot more. Um, so yeah, it's crazy how fast this industry is growing and hopefully um, more outreach can be done. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I completely, I think that interest really drives the increase too. So I more outreach, more profit. Anyways, our next question is uh, just talking about what current barriers that you see based on your experience, in your opinion, um, what barriers do you think there are to access, accessing space outreach events, space education content? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's somewhat, well, it's a little bit of what we've talked about already. I mean, funding is a huge one. You know, you need money to run things. You need money to, to run events, but you also need willingness. Um, you know, you have, there are lots of places that you can go to take aerospace engineering, to you know, take engineering in general, to take astronomy, uh, and all of those departments in universities—they don't really—they're not that interested in doing outreach. Engineering really is. Um, I know most of the places, I, most of the universities I visited have good, strong engineering outreach because there's a return on investment. You get more engineering students, you get better engineering students. They go and do amazing things, get wealthy, and give you money back as a university. I know that's a little bit blunt, but that's that's kind of the truth where you don't see that as much in the sciences. And that's fine, but I think that, you know, naturally there are those uh, societal barriers that are prevalent. I'm, I am a privileged white man who could start a business in space. And although I didn't have, you know, the financial help, there are unseen things that have helped me succeed where others might not. That's something that ultimately we need to make the ability to start these kinds of outreach companies more accessible to everyone, right? I've, I got very lucky to find out that planetariums were a thing. You know, I think that uh, understanding what kinds of things you can do in space outreach will help a lot as well. Software is growing. I mean, you know, Sophia, you've seen some of the stuff that I use both virtually and in person in the dome. And there's a lot more that you can do with not a lot of money. But again, getting people to understand that and, and to learn about that is really um, is really a challenge. I think ultimately the two biggest barriers, though, are finances and awareness. You know, people need to be aware of what's out there and what can be done and and where it leads. And then the funding needs to come in to run those events to to get you know everything from university departments to large organizations like the Canadian Space Agency or the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada to start funding those outreach initiatives, knowing that they'll, they'll end up gaining that benefit back in the future. Yeah, that that's very true. I think there's a lot of barriers to entry. And another thing we wanted to ask you is, what do you think are the best ways to engage people with space education? <laughs> what I'm doing, uh, <laughs> show them, show them. I mean, like the, this is the thing, you know, Carl Sagan, the most famous astronomy science communicator, maybe the most famous astronomer, that's debatable, but, you know, said that uh, when you make the discovery yourself, you'll never forget it, not in a million years. Uh, and and the, the point of that is, I can tell you what Saturn looks like. I can show you what the planet Saturn looks like. I can show you a picture that I took in a telescope of what Saturn looks like. But until you are looking through a telescope at the planet Saturn, it's not going to have as much meaning to you. When you look through a telescope and see that that's a real thing that's up there and that those pictures that you've seen aren't just something that somebody did on a computer, that's incredible. Now, I, I'm kind of, you know, talking against what I do in that because I'm saying, hey, I'm showing you things that I produced with a computer. Um, but the power of the planetarium is that it gives a, it, it makes you feel like you're visiting these places. And that's something that we physically can't do, right? The farthest that humans have ever been in space is the moon. And so to be able to travel visually to another planet and feel like we're, we're seeing it, you know, that makes you curious. That makes you say, Hey, what are those clouds on Jupiter? What, what makes that star explode? what is inside that black hole, right? Those are the, then you start to ask those questions and get curious um, and become invested in it. So I would say that what, what encourages people to study space and what encourages people to learn more about space is to see it. 
and to make those discoveries themselves, whether it's on a, on a flat screen in the dome, speaking to somebody who is passionate and interested in the science, whether that's an astronaut or yours truly, uh, and just, just discovering things. Yeah. Yeah, and I can attest to the fact that the dome is so immersive. And as soon as you get in, and Brian, you have the amazing, you know, you open the doors and you explore space. Like it just, it feels like you're immersed in that environment. And the way you teach it and you encourage people to ask questions and talk to you. And it's just so, yeah, so it's, it's so immersive and just makes you feel like you're, you're the discoverer. So it's, uh, yeah, absolutely incredible. Well, um, the biggest thing is that I, I've heard so many people tell me when they come out of the dome, oh my gosh, I forgot we were here. Like they forget that they're in a gym or, a, you know, that they're in a place where the dome is set up. Like really, once you're in there, it's just like you are part of that experience, whether you like it or not, you become part of it and you become involved and invested in it. Um, and I think that's really powerful because you're not focused on anything else, right? You're not thinking about, I have to do this later. I have this, this list of things to do. I have to go pick up my kids. I have to, you know, whatever it is. I don't know. I have to do the groceries. I have to do laundry. You're not focused on any of that. You're just in that moment uh, having that experience and your full attention is consumed by that experience. That I think is really powerful. Same thing when looking through a telescope, you're not focused on anything else. You're focused on what can I see in this telescope? What am I looking at? that's actually real. That's amazing. You know, it's true. It's true. Last summer when I first saw Saturn through my telescope, I was just like in so much awe and it's just, yeah, just captures your whole attention. <laughs> it doesn't matter that it's blurry or that it's yeah. like, you know, it's, you did that with two small pieces of glass. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. So our next question is, I think you kind of already answered this, but uh, it's, it's kind of, we I'll kind do of it again. Yeah. Um, why are you interested in teaching space education to adults, students? Why, why are you interested in that, in spreading space education to people? Two words, do good. There's so many ways to, to look at the world and say, oh, there are all these terrible things that are happening. And, you know, I'm not going to cure cancer, never going to become a doctor and save lives. Uh, I'm, I will do what I can, but I'm not going to single-handedly reverse climate change or, you know, ab absolve corruption in politics or what, you know, pick a big, a big challenge. But with what I do have, I can create some positivity in the world. And if I, if I can take every single person who comes into the planetarium and give them this experience that makes them more curious about the world that we live in, that makes them interested in learning more about our place and, and our, our planet and the fact that we should revere it and take better care of it. Then if those people go on to become the doctors, to become the environmental advocates, to become the politicians who change the way that we do things, to change our society for the better, then that is far and away this multiple multiplicative multiplicative yeah I think you get what I'm trying to say um effect and so what I look at is that every show that I do every program that I do is a little bit of positive that will hopefully encourage others to do more positive down the road and snowball and do more and more and more as generations move on so what the advice that I give to everybody with their careers is Go do something that's in, that interests you, that you're passionate about, that makes you a decent living, but ultimately make it something that does some good for the world, no matter how small that is. So that's why I, I do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's very inspiring. Just like, you know, taking something that you're good at and then just trying to, you know, use that for I don't know, positivity, that's just a really good sentiment. And it really shows like the passion um, that comes from your show, which is like so nice to hear. Um, and so we did sort of talk about like the barriers that you faced with your programs with regards to funding. Um, but one thing we wanted to ask you about is like, what are the barriers with regards to like reaching students and also reaching like adults 
all over Canada or wherever you are able to like travel to. So what, yeah. yeah, What are those barriers? Well, one of my biggest now is that I have a toddler. So, you know, that's, uh, that's a little bit challenging. So what I I usually say is time, right? The two, the two biggest barriers that any, I mean, the, the one finite thing that we all have is time, right? I mean, that is the most valuable resource that we have. So there's only so much time in a day, right? And the further I have to go, the further I have to travel, that takes more time from uh, developing programs. It takes more time from performing programs. So when it comes to funding, I would look at funding as a way to find others to do, to train, to do the same things that I do as well or better, hopefully, and be able to reach more people. And the purpose of of what I'm doing now is to grow so that I can reach more people so that I can find other people who want to be science communicators for a career and do this kind of thing and actually, you know, make a good wage doing that. Um, And then ultimately taking those people and, and not exactly cloning myself, but essentially making little miniature versions of myself who are passionate about space, who are interested in it, who want to share it with others and then can reach, can then as an organization, we can reach more people than I as one person could. And that's, I think the, the inevitable goal is to have, is to reach more and more people. One of the, one of the most important numbers for me at the end of the year is not, you know, how many shows did I do? How much, how much income did we make? It's, it's how many people did I see in the dome? That's the number that I care about more than any other number. How many people got to see this experience and have this experience and be inspired by it. So um, in terms of barriers, time and money, you know, I, if I could, if I could get the funding to hire more people to build more domes uh, faster, then I could reach more people more quickly. I'm going to do it eventually anyway, but it would be nice to speed up the process a little bit. I have no doubt that you will expand eventually and people will all over Canada will be able to see your dome because it's. Well, I hope so I think that one other thing I'll say about that is that partnerships are really valuable in that front because we rely on clients, right? We, we rely on the funding of others. So, you know, when we do festivals, connecting with a partner like PHSS lets us, uh, bring these experiences that are accessible uh, to the people who are able to attend them and might not have otherwise seen them. So that's why I think partnerships are really important within the industry and beyond the industry, because then you you can take, you know, you can have a partnership with an organization who's not in the space industry and they see, wow, that worked out really well. That was really amazing. Now I want to partner with other space organizations. That's how you grow. Absolutely. So you were talking about partnerships and growing and expanding, and that kind of leads into our next question, which is, uh, what do you think needs to be done to make your programs more accessible or increase your ability to see more people in with the dome? Yeah, I just, I think for me, I need grants and uh, funding that will let me reach, that will let me bring in more people uh, into my organization. Now I'm not a nonprofit or not-for-profit. I'm, I'm sure that you could do this as a not-for-profit organization. But the one thing that I don't like about nonprofits is that they don't pay people enough because they can't, right? There's only so much money in the grant. And, and, uh, you know, like I firmly believe, especially being a science communicator for so long and seeing that it's hard for people to get good paying jobs that they can survive on. I don't want to hire people unless I can pay them a, a living and decent, decent wage. So uh, I almost don't want to grow and expand without doing it the right way. Um, Now that said, because it's a for-profit company, what I need to do is is take the money that I make and then reinvest it in the business so that it can grow in that sustainable way. And I think that's possible, but again, it's going to take longer. Yeah. So more partners, more diverse partners. Uh, and connecting with them, I think, is another big one because I don't think you can grow without those those unique partnerships. I think that's that's what helps you reach people that you wouldn't think that you would reach. You know, I have an idea in my mind of who my market is and who I'm going going to target my programs to. But until I get to work with these different organizations that have their own communities, their own markets, their own um, following, if you will, is another a term you could use. Um, 
I'm just, I'm just going to be able to reach more people that way with proper partnerships. So, you know, forget all the, the employment stuff, forget all the, the, the people. I think partnerships is a good way to do that before you can do it yourself, bring on other people, reach more communities and do more. So the biggest barrier I think is connecting with potential partners and then finding the funding to eventually grow as an organization. Yeah, thank you so much for that that perspective of what it is that you are facing as an organization. So because I've never been to one of your shows, I was interested in sort of understanding how you teach your um, programs and uh, what tools you use in the dome, for example, for any of your um, programs and, and such? Yeah, I mean, most planetarium systems are are produced by a variety of organizations. There are companies that make domes, there are companies that make fisheye lenses, there are companies that make software um, for planetariums, specifically, and, and are very successful at selling that software all around the world. I, I like the freedom of doing unique things and interesting things and customizable things. So I actually make quite a few of my animations on my own that are then used in the dome with my, with my narration. I do most of my own programs when it comes to speaking, because I, I, I just love talking about space. Um, but in terms of how the programs are run, I tend to focus on the traditional planetarium show is one of two things. It's a film that you purchase. That's already got a narrator who is usually somebody kind of somewhat famous and we'll talk about the science and, and that other scientists have provided info to and, and using nice animations. So this produced film, right? That's maybe half an hour long, an audience goes in and they watch that program, but there's no interaction to that. So my philosophy on programs is uh, I want to engage with the audience and have them tell me what they're interested in. What do you want to see? What are you curious about? Uh, if you don't want to say anything, no problem. I've got more than enough words to keep us occupied for the next hour. But the the point is, is encouraging people to start asking questions, to start expressing their curiosity, to, you know, feel the way they felt when they were little kids, learning about everything for the first time and capturing that feeling. So I would say all my programs are strongly inquiry focused about, uh, you know, deciding where you want to go and what you want to do and what you want to see. Um, traditional planetarium programs are, are, I said one of two things. I said either that film or it's a presenter telling you what to look for in the sky, which has its own merit. That's totally fine. But when you have a dome that can do, that can go and visit a black hole up close or see a star explode, that's the stuff I want to be doing. You know, I, I, I can tell you where to look for Saturn in the sky. That's great. And it's really cool. And you might get up at 4.30 in the morning to go see it probably not, but you might. And that's, that's all right. But why don't I just take you to Saturn instead? Why don't I just show you like what it looks like up close and fly into the rings and see that there are little chunks of ice. That's a lot more compelling than showing you where to look for it in the sky. So one thing I'll say is that traditional astronomy is all about, you know, taking out, buying a telescope and taking that telescope out and observing the heavens. Um, and that's not necessarily an accessible thing because not everybody can afford a telescope especially these days, they're quite expensive. So I would say you use the tools that are available to you. You go use your eyes go look at, you know, go try and find the Big Dipper and, and use it to find North. Go, you know, and I'll tell them how, tell people how. Yeah, you want to find a planet? Okay, I'll show you where the planets are and I'll show you that, hey, planets, they don't twinkle like stars. That's how you can identify them and then go and do that. Okay, that's cool. But then when you're looking at that planet, so let's say, you know, let's say you get up at 430 and you go out and see Saturn and you identify it because you see, oh, it's the dot that's not twinkling. It's not as bright as Venus or Jupiter, which are just over there. You can see them too. But I'm looking at Saturn and my memory is, wow, I got to see the rings up close. That's, that's really there. Yeah. I want people to go away with memories of what they saw and new ideas and new desires to uh, continue learning. Yeah, you're very passionate. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> um, the, the last question we want to ask you is, and I mean, I know this from seeing your programs and seeing how people react, but 
they're always amazed. But we just want to ask you what the feedback and response is from your programs and from people who participate in your programs, see the dome in person or virtual. What do you find that the feedback is? Overwhelmingly positive. There, there's a there's a philosophy in, in business and I, I think in life in general, it's under promise over deliver, right? So, but the thing with the planetarium is no matter how great I tell you the programs are, you're just not going to understand until you go and see it yourself. So I think there, that I'm very lucky in that the programs that I have are really hard to market because <laughs> you can you can be like, oh, it's a planetarium. Oh, okay, I'm going to go see images of space. That's really cool. And then you go in there and you get this like amazing 3D experience and you know you have a passionate narrator who tells you all these cool things and you're inspired and excited and then you leave and you're like, holy smokes, that was so much better than I was expecting. That is That can become a life-changing experience. Um, and I think that's why it's so positive is that it's really hard to capture how amazing it is before you actually see it yourself. So I guess I'm a little bit lucky in that sense and a little bit unlucky in that if I could bottle that and give people a little taste of that before they book a program, I think I'd, I'd have no problem filling my schedule for the next six years. You know what I mean? So um, yeah, so the, the, the feedback is overwhelmingly positive and I, I fully believe that I'm doing something right and I just wanna keep doing it uh, and keep reaching more people and uh, hopefully inspiring others to feel the way I feel about the universe. And with those words, we reach the end of today's episode. Actually, that's a lie. There is just one last thing before we go. We asked Kate and Ryan why they were passionate about space exploration, and we'll leave you to listen to what they had to say. So thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. What makes me passionate about space is just that it's so cool. I mean, that sounds like sort of a glib answer, but I think there's a lot of really beautiful, really fascinating stuff out there, understanding the universe that we live in you know the reality that we inhabit seeing how much just really uh, astounding phenomena are out there and just and beautiful things and and mysterious things like under sort of getting more and more insight into the sort of majesty of the cosmos I find that deeply personally rewarding and I enjoy sharing that with other people because I know a lot of other people also find that rewarding Oh, geez. It's, uh, I was just ever since I was a little kid, I saw a solar eclipse when I was six, seven, eight years old and just, you know, absorbed everything I could, even though I grew up in the country, every book that I could read, uh, you know, and, and, and I think that one of the first things that I did when I, I saw a solar eclipse when I was eight was I was like, I have to make a, I have to do a project about this in school. And I told my teacher, I'm like, I want to talk about this to all my classmates. I want to tell them why this is the coolest thing ever. And I did. And then I, been doing that ever since. I, I love telling people why the universe is an amazing place, why astronomy as a science can open your mind to bigger ideas. And some people are unfamiliar with it, and then it's nice to help them discover it. Some people feel intimidated by science topics, or they feel that science is inaccessible to them. So I'm really passionate about breaking down those barriers and encouraging people into Um, an appreciation of science. So I'm really all about it for those reasons. I know there's a lot of people in the space industry who are about, you know, international competitiveness, you know, like getting Canada up there or about the economic benefits of the space industry or technology development. That stuff is not really my driving force. I'm really all about the sort of quest for knowledge itself and for an understanding of sort of the context in which we all exist, in in which the earth exists and uh, how it, it gives you a sense of, of not only smallness compared to the universe, but a sense of importance as an intelligent species in the universe. I, I just, I think space is a, a way to humble a human being about their place. So I do think it's valuable for people to have a bit of a cosmic perspective to kind of feel important yet small and insignificant i know those are competing ideas but the rarity of life in the universe and the ability that we have the luck that we have to exist as we are and to be able to ask questions about the universe you know we've developed into this species that can do all these wild and crazy things and you know even though we have so many troubles everything going on here on the earth is sort of so grand 
yet we are such an insignificant small part of our universe. This episode is produced by SEDS Canada with music from Pixabay. Special thanks to Kate Howells and Ryan Marciniak for agreeing to be interviewed. If you're interested in more of what they do, we've included some links in this episode's description. And, of course, if you want to find out more about SEDS Canada and how you can get involved, we've included our website link as well.